John Bidwell is the Astor Curator and Department Head of Printed Book and Bindings at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Start with your role here at the Morgan. Well, there are a number of curatorial departments at the Morgan. We've got drawings, medieval and renaissance manuscripts, literary and historical manuscripts, music manuscripts, printed books in terms of sheer space occupied the largest apartment at the Morgan. And we go from the invention of printing up to modern first editions. People think of Morgan as a great repository of early books. Visitors who come from out of town, the first thing they want to see is Gutenberg Bible. And the Morgan is famous for having three of them. We really are a center for research and early books. But we've got major collections in 18th century, 19th century, and just recently we've made a foray into the 20th century. This is something of an adventure for us, but I think we've gotten off to a great start, and so the printed books collection now has thousands of American and English modern first editions. How'd you get those? At first, by gift. In the annals of antiquarian book selling, the name Carter Burton is famous. He was one of those people who would go through bookstores and book fairs and just sweep books up. Cost is no object. So a typical case of a person who started as an art collector and paid, as you can imagine, huge prices for modern big names. Deaccessioned a good portion of his collection and then was thrilled to discover that he could collect big names in the world of literature at a fraction of the cost mm -hmm. and did so with energy and determination that basically changed the market. He was a market maker. When did he S do this? 70s, 80s. He died in 1995. The story is that he got up to about 60,000 books and decided, I've got to reduce, and gave away some collections, sold some collections. When he died in 1995, his family agreed to give this, and some of it is already alive, and the rest is lost. Yeah. His apartment, uh, which is huge, contains seven, eight thousand books, mm -hmm. which are a promised gift to the market. We have about six thousand volumes, uh, which we've cataloged and are available for scholars. That's what got us started. It gave you a lovely foundation to absolutely complete what uh, he'd started. Now, these are Americans. He's collected just about every author from Ezra Pound, sort of 1880s, 1890s, up to Thomas Pynchon. Just Americans? Just Americans. So you could consider this a leadership gift because others saw the Morgan going into this field. And so in 2002, we received a request of English poetry, particularly strong in World War I poets. Sassoon, Rupert Brooke. Owen. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wilfred Owen. 
absolutely pristine copies, many of them with annotation. Where did you See, get this from? A librarian. He was actually one of my library school teachers who was a very, very gifted collector. His name was Kenneth Loft. He worked at Columbia. Your definition of gifted? Prescient? He knew not only the connoisseurship side of book collecting, what is the right copy to buy, but he also knew when to buy, buy low, sell high, and he did enough that he made, just from collecting, a pretty good fortune for himself. War poets were his passion. He worked on it for years. He would have had to have been traveling to England a lot because they're not, they don't have the rights regular, here. Regular, yeah. regular visits to London to go to the great antiquarian bookstores like Mags, Sims. It was a annual progress on the part of Kenneth Loft. Again, he was incredibly successful. Just, just to mention one book, one of my favorites, you mentioned Wilfred Owen. That's a posthumous publication. I think it was 1920. Edited by his friend Siegfried Sassoon. Sassoon saw the book through the press. Kenneth Loft got Sassoon's annotated copy with notes like, on Dolce et Decorum Est. Well, this is pretty horrific poem, and it's not really the way I remember it, but, you know, that's the purpose of this. And interestingly, Kenneth Loft also left an acquisitions endowment for the Morgan to continue on where he left off. And we've just bought our fourth copy of that Wolfred Owen collected poems, 1920. Why would you want to have four copies? Well, this copy was annotated in the same way by the war poet Robert Nichols, who actually reviewed collected poems. This was a copy that he had annotated as a gift for a friend. So he was making it personal and special. But you can see, being able to have the Siegfried Sassoon copy of the book with the Robert Nichols copy of the book, well, that's something special. Do you go to auction? Do you scout online ABE books? How do you... Every... Every which every, way? Every which way. Indeed, we bid at auction, sometimes with success, frequently without success. We get quotes from antiquarian booksellers who will write to us and say, we know you're interested in World War I poets. We've heard about the Kenneth Loft collection. Perhaps you'd like to pursue this. We get their catalogs. I've got drawers full of catalogs there. We go to book fairs. Sometimes that works. Time and travel permitting, we'll visit a bookstore. The full-service antiquarian bookstore off the street is rapidly becoming a thing of the past, but it's still great to have that, well, I won't say epiphany, but that, that happy moment on the shelf. Mm. When thrill. You pick something up, the mm -hmm. thrill, thank you, sir, mm. where you actually say, this book is just right for Morgan. So that still can happen. So this book is just right for Morgan. What are those books? The condition, obviously. That has been a question that has absorbed us for some time in the printed books department. Printed books are multiples. They aren't if they're an association copy, though. Uh, you've answered 
your question right there. So a good association copy, which has to be something more than Oscar Wilde saying, I hope you like this book, but if it's Oscar Wilde to Bosey, Lord Alfred Douglas, now you're getting somewhere. You can trace lines of influence. So even though we have New York public just across town, we've got Columbia University uptown, we've got New York University downtown, we've got Princeton University in commuting distance, if we can find a special copy, noteworthy either because of its rarity, its condition, annotations, an inscription, maybe original artwork, that's what makes it a Morgan copy. So we try very hard not to duplicate the resources of other institutions. Yeah, and of course the fact that they're association copies and maybe annotated is particularly interesting to scholars who would come here. Absolutely. For that reason. Absolutely. Yeah. And this is true for the early books too. There was a time when antiquarian booksellers great effort bleached out the annotations <laughs> which were unsightly <laughs> to the collector's mm -hmm. eye. Mm -hmm. You can still see that in some unhappy books. But scholarship has moved on and the reading experience in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance is now a hot topic. And so those annotations showing how a person responded to the book Regardless of who that person is, exactly. Mm -hmm. Of course, it it matters, but there's a, there must be a certain time frame where it starts not to matter so much. Yes, if you're lucky, you've got an identifiable person, and surprisingly, a lot of people do sign their names, or there's other evidence that you can identify the hand. But you're right; any intelligent reading of an early book is valuable. And of course when you get up to the present period then again you want to have an identifiable person. Right. What's your most satisfying acquisition? How long have you been here? I've been here for 10 years. Hard to choose. One could say they're books important because of the rarity, books important because of their sheer beauty or I should say exhibitability which is an important factor for Morgan. Which is the Morgan one that gave you the most thrill? The most exciting story, for me personally, has to do with the first French illustrated Book of Hours, 1485. Books of Hours, prayer books, are very important in the history of printing, very valuable to us rhetorically because they show what printing can do. Books of Hours were the first printed bestsellers, phenomenally popular. Uh, they were just the right size and shape for you to take home and use for personal devotions. And they were always illustrated. The illustration is very important in the devotional experience because you need sacred images, something to sort of focus your attention something that you can pray to. So you could say this was the first fabulously successful publishing formula. It has been estimated that between 1,600 and 1,800 editions 
were printed between the 15th and the 16th century. And if you think, well, 500 copies in addition, that's a lot of books. Not now, quite as many as the, the Da Vinci Code, but... <laughs> you're kidding there. Um, for, uh, for that period given, of time. Given the technology, <laughs> the distribution systems of that time, that was pretty good. And so the Morgan has the strongest collection of books of ours in America. And we're up there with the British Library, the Bibliotheque Nationale, and the Vatican Library. Just to give you some numbers, we have maybe 270 manuscript books of ours and about 150 printed books of ours. Why the thrill for you? This is the only known copy of this 1485 edition. It was completely unknown until 1966 when it was discovered by a London-New York antiquarian bookseller named Bernard Breslauer. It was a sleeper, as they say. It came up in an auction sale in London and just said, unrecorded book of ours. He realized it was important. He bought it. It went through the food chain, ended up in a German library which deaccessioned it in November 2007. So it goes back up for sale at that point. I think this is a book that the Morgan had to have. But obviously it's going to be sold at a huge price. And you had to have it because of your existing collection and this would complement it? Exactly. Exactly. This would be the centerpiece of the printed books component of the Book of Hours collection, and it would show the transition from the manuscript Books of Hours to the printed Books of Hours, since it's the first of its kind. You're seeing in this book very crude woodcuts and very tentative typography, the publisher trying to work out this formula. And the same person, in just a few years later, will have a very sophisticated scheme of typography and illustration. So you can tell, just by looking at this rather humble book, that this is important. So to make a long story short, we went to the foundation that had been established with the estate of Bernard Breslauer, the man who had discovered it back in 1966, and told the foundation that we would zero out our acquisitions funds for that year on that one book, if they would support us. And I think it caught their imagination. This would be a memorial to Bernard Breslauer, the founder yeah. of the foundation, and they agreed to help us with this. The sale came up, and I will tell you that it looks like it was destined to come to the Morgan, and this is why. We had competition. We had serious competition in that a German bookseller needed to have this book too. He needed to have the book because he had been putting together a collection of books of ours that he wanted to sell to a museum en bloc and had not been able to sell it. He needed this book as the centerpiece for that collection, the star item, which just might catch some museum director's imagination. I wasn't present at the sale. We had an agent. The story goes that the bookseller's agent was at the sale on a cell phone, getting instructions as the bids went up and up, 
and the bits came up perilously to our limit and suddenly the cell phone broke the power ran out the reception went out I'm not sure what the problem was they tell me that the agent was furiously jabbing at the cell phone when the book was knocked down to us <laughs> okay so Bernard Breslauer was looking down on us saying this book I'm speaking with John Bidwell, who's the Astor Curator and Department Head of Printed Book and Bindings at the Morgan Library and Museum in New York. So what was it about that particular bookseller? It's knowledge, the ability to spot something that's worth something, and isn't that just the key behind so much book collecting? Absolutely. He was a second-generation bookseller. He had been schooled in the great traditions of the Antichrist but clearly needed to make his living. And so the combination of great knowledge, great taste, and that commercial thrust and parry made him one of the great booksellers of his day. Moving then on to your collection, and I suppose what might be of greatest interest to current book collectors, you're trying to flesh out as best you can World War One poets, British poets. You've been given a, a magnificent collection of firsts from Ezra Pound up to Pynchon. So what are you doing to augment that foundation? Complete it? Yes. A library like this has two roots. One of them is gift and the other is by purchase. And I told you that we now have a rather nice endowment for the World War One. World War II, actually. Mm -hmm. For the balance, we're looking for people who are sympathetic to the mission of the Morgan, who are going to help us with these acquisitions. And in a way, the gift of the Carter Bourbon Collection was sort of a leadership gift, in that other people saw that, not just kind of fluff. And, oh, well, the Morgan is collecting in the 20th century now. Perhaps they might be interested in my collection. And and they would get a tax receipt, obviously, as part of that. Their name on some sort of collection? Be assured that the Morgan <laughs> does all it can to credit its donors in exhibitions, our cataloging, and our publications. And so we've been very successful with gifts in that area. Just to give you one example, Edwin V. Irby Jr., who was a librarian in a New Jersey State College. He had worked for New Directions and was greatly inspired by the experience. I think it's one of those typical situations where you work for a publishing firm for two years and then you're fired. But he treasured the memory of working for that famous publisher, James I think it was. And so he had always been interested in modernist writings. When he retired from this librarian's position, he went to live in a village, had a very nice brownstone, and proceeded to fill it with modern firsts, mostly village authors such as Paul Bowles, Juna Barnes, that had a particular resonance for him. He wrote to the Morgan 
and said, would you be interested in my collection of modern furs? Didn't say anything that he had filled a house full of them. And what do you do? You write back and you say, certainly. And you must know about the Carter Burton collection. Let's talk some more. I'd love to come and visit. Let's confer about matters of mutual interest. No reply. Five years pass. A letter comes to the director of this institution from a lawyer saying this collection has been bequeathed to the Morgan, along with a handsome sum of money. And we should make arrangements for pickup. I had to be reminded that I had written this letter five years ago. Fine. I thought, well, we had to do with a couple of shelves of books. That's the way it usually is. Yeah. We go down there and could have been 20,000 books. Could have been 20,000. What to do? For one thing, the estate was telling us you need to clear out the brownstone because we need to sell this as part of liquidating the estate. Thanks to the miracle of online library cataloging, we were able to send one of the curators down to work for a week with a laptop going through this collection to see if we had a copy. Time and time again, the Carter Burton collection already had them. And a lot of them were sort of second-hand books which were out of scope anyways. So you mean they weren't first editions, for they, example? They weren't really first Not editions. Not great editions. They were reading copies. Though there was a great Gatsby and dust jacket kind of frayed, but Doesn't that matter. was very nice. Yeah. But Carter Burton already had a pristine copy. We took Morgan principles of seal activity to a new height. From that collection, we took 48 books. Out of 20,000. So Tennessee Williams typescripts, three or four books that had belonged to Hart Crane, some books that Samuel Beckett had inscribed to Irby. He must have been at a reading or who knows what. They were great books. We found a member of the Antiquarian Book Trade who was willing to purchase the duplicates. Never in my professional career had I dealt with such a quantity of duplicates, but it was a very happy transaction, and now we have an Edwin Irby endowment that's going to allow us to pursue the same sort of books that he was interested mm. in. That's great, carrying on his life's work. Absolutely. Mm. And that's sort of a capsule history of the printed books department at the Morgan. People say, well, the Morgan should collect a French illustration of the 18th century. Here's my collection, and I'm going to give you the means to continue where I left off. That's well, your ideal situation then. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sure you have more people approaching you than you obviously would accept or, or... Well, it is true that we are not able to accept certain kinds of gifts, usually because they duplicate resources already in New York. Mm. And you make this hard decision, how much is it going to cost us to catalog this material, 
and to conserve it in the balance with what will the scholarly community of New York get out of this that is special. Sometimes it turns out just to be too low yield. So we'll express our regrets and the collection will go somewhere else. Is that as much as anything what drives the direction of the collection, bequeathing of various collections, or is it a combination of that the plus combination, yes. following along on the direction that the ones that you've accepted, the path that they were starting along? Well, let me tell you a significant difference between the Morgan and most American rare book libraries. Most are university research libraries. They serve a designated constituency, faculty, graduate students, undergraduates working on term papers or seminar papers. The rare book librarians at these institutions know exactly what they need to collect because they are supporting a curriculum. A set curriculum. A set curriculum. The university, or if they're really lucky, the university's endowment will give them a pot of money to buy anything. So if a star faculty member comes in and announces that there's going to be a research center in early English shipbuilding, then it is the duty and the pleasure of the rare book librarians to build a supporting collection. So your decisions are made for you. Now, if the university's been around for long enough, there will be sort of a critical mass of collections, and everybody would expect to go to a place like Texas for modern literature, you'd go to Harvard for great Renaissance illustrated books. I'm just mentioning a few sure. examples. Mm -hmm. So that's going to make your decisions for you as well. Right. I'm saying that the Morgan doesn't have that constituency. We serve scholars working on special topics who come from anywhere in the nation. Many of them come from abroad. And we serve the general public who comes to look at our exhibits. So our acquisitions decisions are going to be made on what we do best. Again, that's going to be determined by those initial core mm -hmm. gifts. The early books collected by Pierpont Morgan, French 18th century illustration I told you about, New Directions and Modern Firsts, all of those respond to core collections. Right, okay. We don't collect any history of medicine because there's the Academy of Medicine uptown. We don't collect any contemporary fine printing or artist books because you've got New York Public Library, which has been doing this for years. You've got the Museum of Modern Art with a choice collection. Why should we duplicate their resources? But the Modern Firsts is an area that not that many libraries are... It's such a broad category, well, though. actually, a lot are. And so when it comes to our purchases, again, we're looking for that special copy. The association copy. or Association, binding, illustration, you name it. This is maybe not a fair question, but it's it's one that's on the mind of a lot of collectors, and that would be, who are you going after <laughs> so that we can get on that bandwagon? First of all, I guess, how modern are the modern firsts that you're 
you're after. Are you speculating at all or, or not? I can easily answer that question in that we are just beginning to face the challenge of whether to collect living authors or living artists. Every department except our medieval and renaissance colleagues are going to be faced with this challenge. And at the moment, all departments have made some very tentative forays into the work of living authors and living artists. But as a matter of policy, we have not made the investment that what you're referring to that you get from Texas and those institutions. No names to give you because we have not really decided to go that far yet. We may make that decision in a matter of years. At that point, will you make your selection? Is it on the public record? I'm sure it will be. I personally am of a divided mind about this. I kind of like it when the critics come to a consensus and you know what you're doing. It takes time. The Morgan's been around for a while. You don't want to take the risk then. Basically. If we had Texas oil money, <laughs> maybe we'd be more eager, but I see literary reputations. John Goldsworthy is the Goldsworthy is a great example. Yeah. Of course, one of my first jobs, I had to catalog a Kipling collection, and now you're talking late 70s, and I was thinking, this is terrible. But of course, Kipling's come back. It vindicates the work I had done. But there are plenty of people, Goldsworthy is a classic example, that I, I think are irrecoverable. So we can't get any uh, hot tips from you well, then in terms of... Because, of yeah, course, as soon as you yeah. bless an author by deciding to collect that author, then the value of that author's work is going to... In theory. Actually, you should be talking to my colleagues in the literary manuscripts department because... They're the ones who are more likely to make the investment in a living author on that kind of serious scale. It would take serious thinking in the printed books department. Are we going to collect everything from high school yearbook, ephemera, movie posters, all the later editions, the translations, and so on and so on. In general, we have avoided doing that kind of an author collection. It's not the sort of thing that people expect at the Morgan. They expect rather three or four signal copies of that author, which they need to look at if they're textual critic or writing a biography or something like that rather than hunkering down for a month to work their way through a complete author collection. That just has not been our style. I suppose it's always worthwhile getting an expert's advice on what the incipient book collector might do. That's one of the great things about the internet. It has completely changed the book collecting field. The great thing is that people collect anything now. It doesn't have to be authors. It doesn't even have to be literature. For years, I was judge of 
undergraduate book collecting prizes sort of situation where at the end of the school year you would invite undergraduates to show to a panel of judges the 30 or so books that they've collected in the field of interest. Many of those were not author collections. One of my favorite collections was plane spotting. This is a person who went to the end of, of the LAX, the airport, to see what sort of planes were coming in. And by gosh, there is a literature of people, I guess they would meet at the end of a runway and they would sell or swap books that would show you how to identify commercial aircraft. And this student had put together 30 of them. I thought it was an incredibly ingenious idea. There was a nurse, somebody in the nursing school, who put together a collection on euthanasia. It was kind of a scary prospect, but okay. Not if you're dying in pain. Well, there you go. I, I could give any number of examples of how people's interests just go in directions you could not possibly imagine. And I'm saying that the internet has made this possible. It has really opened the book collecting field. You know, you're not having to spend thousands of dollars or even hundreds of dollars. You're spending just a few dollars to put together a collection which really has intellectual significance in an area nobody else could guess. And would be of interest certainly to everyone that, for example, has an interest in euthanasia or spotting commercial airlines. Absolutely. So I think these are exciting times. If you're interested in the commercial side of it, you then mean, these you are making, troubling times. You mean making money off your investment? Exactly. Yeah. In my opinion, anybody who buys books for investments is due for a disappointment. You're buying books because you like them, and it may happen if you've got good taste and good timing. You or your successors may make a profit, but certainly wouldn't count on it. I would say seven times out of ten, it's not going to happen. But the personal satisfaction and the intellectual excitement is extraordinary. Internet shopping for books is just one of the great things that, that has happened in this field. Just because you come across items that previous to the internet you'd have to travel physically all around the world to get. Well, it's more than that. It's that your searching on the internet reveals books that you didn't even know existed. That to me is the real excitement. And then of course it's the immediate gratification of being able to order it right on the spot and see it in a few days. And you can also bottom feed as well and troll at the lower end to see what's on sale as well. Yes. Not always the best policy, but from time to time you come across items that are, for whatever reason, priced at well below the market. Everybody has their eBay stories. eBay is just one route that you can go. Anybody can go into the book selling business and put their books on the web. Which is upsetting to the professionals in the business, but... Absolutely. It's harder to control the blue chips. If it's a valuable book, but a common book, then everybody knows the price. And it's hard for you to increase your margin because everybody else has got a copy of the book on the web. Mm -hmm. And anybody who's in their right mind is going to check. What can I say? It keeps you honest. So your advice then to the incipient or nascent collector is come up with something that you're really interested in, however bizarre, and, and go, go after. Yes. Do, do what you know rather than doing what people tell you to.
Of course, if you like something that's canonical literature, by all means. But the real ingenuity goes into what you can find that's new and unusual around it. And it used to be that you would go to the secondhand bookstores. Everybody, again, has the stories of finding things in dusty corners and deserted alleyways and so on. I guess that can still happen, but that's less of a feature of book collecting. And in a way, buying on the internet's higher yield. Of course, it was fun to get in your car and to go to country booksellers. There was a kind of still is, but vacation air to it. Mm-hmm. And of course, you've got the book in your hands. It's much more difficult to get the thrill of finding a book that's undervalued. Yes. Well, to me. The best part of this job is getting books in the mail and it's opening up the package and hoping that what you're going to see is what you ordered. (laughs) (laughs) There can be some disappointments Mm -hmm. and maybe something special that you didn't expect to see. This is talking about your your professional capacity here? This is working at the morgue. Great. Well, thanks so much for sharing your knowledge and your thrills. My pleasure. And I'll uh, be happy to uh, promote your collections as best I can on the show. Thank you, sir. I've been speaking with John Bidwell, who's the Astor Curator and Department Head, Printed Book and Bindings at the Morgan Library Museum in New York.